Well, good morning again. Get this right. Uh, we are continuing on in our series through Mark's Gospel. This one's going to be a doozy. I'm just prepping you. Uh, if you have in your uh, if you have your Bible in your hands, you can turn to Mark chapter nine. If you don't have a Bible, there are a number of Bibles on the back that you can grab. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2, let me read for us. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let me pray for us. Lord, this is your word, and we thank you that you have, in your grace and mercy, made yourself known to us. Uh, Even as I have prayed already, in the person and in the face of Christ Jesus. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to see him rightly. That you would help us to see him as he is. That even as Jesus is here revealed in his glory that you would again this morning reveal to us Jesus Christ in all his glory that we might see him and be changed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so have you guys ever heard that saying, you are what you eat? Have you, heard, have you heard that saying before? If that's true, I should just be a big giant slice of pizza because I really like pizza. I'm a pizza connoisseur of sorts. Uh, but the point, of course, is that, that, that of that saying is that w- whatever you put into your body is going to have an impact on your body itself, right? If you put unhealthy food into your body, uh, you will have an unhealthy body. That's, of course, demonstrably true in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. It's, it's not so much you are what you eat. It's more you are what you see. It's more... You behold, or you be, I should say, you become what you behold. That, in many ways, is what's behind every sales and marketing strategy. Uh, why do you think it is that Home Depot and Lowe's sponsor shows on HGTV? Because they know that when you regularly are seeing home improvement shows that you yourself are going to want to maybe do some home improvements or 
uh, you know, like fast food commercials, you know, when they like show you those like sultry zoom in shots of the food. On the one hand, they make you a little uncomfortable, but on the other hand, they make you hungry, right? Or, or why is it uh, that people who spend all their time engrossed in social media, putting before their eyes controversy and argument and debate, become themselves people obsessed with controversy and argumentative? It is this truth that we become what we behold. We Uh, behold things and are shaped by them. That what we behold, what we set before our eyes changes us for better or for worse. So let me ask you real quick, what are the things that you regularly set before your eyes? What are the things that you regularly behold? You will be changed one way or another by the things that you behold. What are the things that you are regularly beholding? What does that have to do with our passage this morning? Uh, This morning we're considering the transfiguration of Jesus. That word transfiguration uh, is from the Greek word uh, metamorpho, which basically means to transform or to change. So what's this passage all about? Am Am I saying that Jesus transforms or changes? You know, of course, from Hebrews 13, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we, of course, are not saying that Jesus somehow changes or transforms in his nature. More what we're saying is that he is revealed for who he truly is. The curtain is pulled back on the Mount of of Transfiguration. The, The curtain is pulled back and the disciples are given a sight of Jesus as he truly is, as the glorious and beloved and eternal Son of God. And it's this very thing. It's seeing Jesus, and it is beholding Jesus that has the power to transform God's people, to cause them to grow. I wonder if Right now in your life, in your, in your Christian life, if you are experiencing growth, maybe you are, maybe you're in, a, in, in this just tremendous period of growth, or, or maybe you feel as though uh, you have not been growing as you would like to be. Maybe you can look back to a time in your Christian life when, when you were growing very rapidly, but now you just sort of feel stuck. I want you to know that how we grow is by looking to Jesus. The secret, if you will, which is really no secret at all, to Christian growth is that you become what you behold. This is Paul's very point in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, when he says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So so that's our goal this morning, to behold Jesus. In in some sense, that's our goal every Sunday morning, right? To come together and sing and pray and behold Jesus together in his word that we would be changed. So this morning, I don't have my usual three points. I, I I have just one point, and that one point is seeing Jesus. 
but for your, uh, for my organizational purposes and for your benefit, I have divided up my one point into 10 subpoints. So it is what it is. I, I don't know if we're going to get to all 10. I really want to. So here's how I'm thinking about this sermon. <clears throat> have you ever had someone uh, take you through a new a house you're looking to buy? What you want that person to do is show you as many of the features of that house as you can, as they can, right? It would be pretty disappointing if they brought you in and then just showed you the refrigerator for a half hour, right? So what I want to do is sort of give you the whole landscape of the transfiguration. There is so much here. It literally is like the entire story of the Bible in a section. So I want to give you a, a sort of broad overview. I want, I want you to see as many of the, the little glories and wonders of the transfiguration as I can. So I'm going to be as brief as I can be on these 10 points and maybe we'll get through them. Maybe we won't. We'll, we'll see. I'm going to do my best and we'll, we'll go from there. So are, are you ready? Are you ready to go? <laughs> All right, here we go. So the, the, the first thing we see in the transfiguration is that Jesus is the final prophet, right? You, you notice that on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's joined by two Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Some have suggested that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And so there's this reality that uh, depicted that all the law and the prophets point to Jesus. I actually think it's something a little bit more basic than that. In both the ministry of Moses and Elijah, God powerfully reveals himself. There's a sense in which mountains throughout the scriptures are places where God reveals himself. And so in the transfiguration, we see Jesus taking the disciples onto a high mountaintop, an undisclosed mountain, but, but called a high mountaintop. And that clues us into the fact that what God is about to do here in the transfiguration is reveal himself. And God does that throughout the, whole, the Old Testament. And two of the most notable instances where he does that are in the lives of, you guessed it, Moses and Elijah. So th there are parallels. If, if you get an opportunity this afternoon, I would highly encourage you to go and read Exodus 24 and Exodus 34, and you will see all kinds of parallels all over the place. I'll, I'll, I'll show you some of them, but it, it is a treasure trove of parallels between the transfiguration and these two passages in Exodus. But the, the main one I want you to see is the one that we read from earlier in the uh, scripture reading, the one that Max read for us in Exodus 24. 24, 15, we read this. Then Moses went up on the mountain. It's the first parallel. He went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. You'll see a cloud in the transfiguration as well, by the way. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and, and the cloud covered it six days. You know, Mark is in his gospel very rarely gives specific demarcations of time. But did you notice in the beginning of our passage, it begins that uh, the, the way uh, Mark says it, and after six days, right? He's, he's actually hearkening back to uh, Moses' time on the mountain where the glory cloud covered it six days. But then we read, on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days 
and 40 nights. And then we jump over to Exodus 34 and we see Moses again atop a mountain on Mount Sinai. And what does the Lord do? The Lord passes before Moses. And as he passes by, he declares, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You see, it's on the top of mountains that God reveals his glory. And there on that mountain, the disciples are about to see the glory of the Lord. But what about Elijah? Perhaps the most famous story of Elijah is his encounter with the 450 prophets of Baal, right? In 1 Kings 18. In this story, Elijah goes up on a mountain. He goes up on a mountain and there he challenges 450 of Baal's prophets to sort of like a theological duel, if you will. Uh, he, he challenges them to summon their gods to, to consume a sacrifice. And the prophets cry out all day, wailing and cutting themselves and all kinds of crazy things. But there's nothing, right? Silence. But then Elijah prepares his sacrifice and he prays, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And fire fell and consumed the sacrifice. And 1 Kings 18.39 says, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Another instance in, in Elijah's life, he goes up on a mountain again. And the Lord passes by him. And he passes by in the earthquake, and in the wind, and in the storm. Remember that verse? But the point is, he goes up on the mountain, and there the Lord is revealed. What's being said as we come to the transfiguration? Though Moses and Elijah served in the Old Testament as, as prophets, they ultimately prefigured and pointed to one who would come as the final prophet, right? Elijah and Moses prophesied in part. They made God known in part. But a day was coming when a final prophet would come and he would make God known in full. The, the entirety, all of God's glory would be seen in this prophet. And there they are standing Atop that mountain, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples see Jesus, who is the final prophet. And in seeing Jesus, they see the Lord. But brothers and sisters, do you realize that as you look into the face of Jesus Christ, as he is uh, described, as he is portrayed in the word, you look into the very glory of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Now, why is this good news? In seeing the Lord, we see truth, we see goodness, we see wisdom, we see love, we see righteousness, we see all the attributes of God. We see the Lord who is the self-sufficient 
I am, who is the maker and sustainer of all things. In Jesus, we see, listen, in Jesus, we see not only the one who tells us the truth, we see the one who is the truth. And because we see in Jesus all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we no longer have to look to the world to tell us the truth. We no longer have to be deceived by the lies of the enemy in a world that is driving itself absolutely mad, absolutely crazy, abandoning even the idea of truth. We can have confidence that Jesus, as he is presented in the scriptures, truly, reliably, and sufficiently reveals to us the truth. Most importantly, the truth about who God is and all that he has done for you. So first, of the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Jesus, the final prophet. Secondly, and very closely related, we see the Lord of glory. I want to tease out the reality that when the disciples go up on the mountain to see God revealed, Jesus isn't, just isn't giving them right instruction about God. Right? Jesus just isn't holding like some master class on who God is and the attributes of God. When they go up on that mountain, they see Jesus who is the glory of the Lord. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Words fail at this point for me to try to describe what the disciples see on that mountain. Even the, 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 the author, the, the disciples strain, they, they struggle to find words to describe what they were looking into as they look into the very glory of the Lord. Look again with me at verse 2. It says, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. In Matthew's parallel account of these same events, he writes, his face shone like the sun and his clothes were as white as light. The gospel authors strained to put words together that accurately describe the indescribable and express the inexpressible and explain the unexplainable, that there's no way to capture with language the beauty that is beheld as they look into the face of Jesus Christ at his transfiguration. The very, the very glory of God emanates from Jesus, just as, just as the light of the sun is too brilliant to look into, so the pure brightness and dazzling, uh, uh, dazzling beauty of Jesus is overwhelming. H- have you ever had that feeling of being totally overwhelmed by something beautiful? Have you known that feeling? There have been two times in my adult life where I have absolutely broken down, wept, and cried. And one of those times was in one of these instances that, that I'm talking about. Uh, when we had Adley, when we had, when we had our first baby, I remember two hours of well, long labor, two hours of intense pushing, and then Adley came out and she was like, she was just the most beautiful little baby that I had ever seen in my entire life. And, 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 and I saw Lindsay and I saw Adley and, and they were both so beautiful and I, the beauty of the whole thing, and I just absolutely broke down, lost it, could not compose myself, couldn't get myself together, and I loved every minute of it. 
It's that kind of beauty where you see it and it like, it hurts. You know, it causes your heart to ache, but you don't want it ever to end. Have you known that feeling? Seeing something so beautiful that it just totally overwhelms you. Why, why is that the case? We are chasers of glory, chasers of beauty. We love glory. We love beauty. We, we long with every ounce of our being to behold glorious and beautiful things. It's why we idolize athletes. It's why we idolize music, musicians. It's why there seems to be no end to the talent shows that keep coming out on, on TV. There's like 40 of them, like enough already. But we love to behold glory. But here's the thing. I wonder if you can resonate with this. We don't just want to behold glory, do we? We don't just want to behold it. We want to touch it. We want to embrace it. We want beauty to recognize us and call us to itself. We want to, we want to become a part of it. We want to join to it. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with beauty, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Do you, do you know what he's talking about? Have you experienced that? Moreover, do you know that that's exactly what Jesus is doing here? You know, unbeknownst to the disciples, you know, the disciples have been walking along with Jesus for some time now, and unbeknownst to them, they are walking with the very Lord of glory. But look what Jesus does in verse two. It says, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Jesus literally takes them by the hand and he leads them up to the mountain into glory. It's not just that he's gonna show it to them. He leads them up into it, that they might come into it, that they might partake in it. They are not just witnessing glory. They are in glory, utterly surrounded and engulfed by the presence of the living God. Verse seven, remember, remember in Exodus 24, the cloud that settled on the mountain, that represented the, the very presence of God. <clears throat> Verse 7 tells us that they were overshadowed by a cloud. Moses goes up on the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Th throughout the Old Testament, the very presence of God is often depicted as a cloud, right? A cloud that leads the people in the wilderness, a cloud that settles over the tabernacle, a cloud that fills the temple. And here they are up on the mountain, surrounded and engulfed by the, by the very presence of God. How? How is it that they are, they, are, they are so engulfed and consumed and brought into the very presence of God? How is it? Because they are in the presence of Jesus. Indeed, obtaining this glory, embracing, possessing this glory is one of the very promises we are given. Jeremy read it in our uh, assurance of pardon, right? But we ought always to give thanks to you, God, for you, uh, to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing more beautiful than Jesus Christ, the the image of the invisible God. Think of the most beautiful thing that you have ever seen. For me, besides my wife, it is the Grand Canyon. Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. Think how beautiful must be the one who made that, who thought that up. Think about how beautiful must be the one. The the, the Grand Canyon is like barely a drop in a bucket compared to the beauty that is the glory of the Lord. And it's this glorious one that you have been united to by faith. So you don't have to chase after cheap imitations of his glory. You are set free to appreciate the beautiful things in this world as reflections of the glory of God without putting your hope in those things as that which will satisfy your soul. Number three, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Jesus as the final temple of God. If mountains are places where God reveals himself to men, then they are portraits of the temple. Think again, back to Exodus 24. You see this progression in going up the mountain. The Lord calls Moses. He brings Israel, the people of Israel, to the base of the mountain. And then he says, all right, Moses, you're going to bring Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and they're going to come up partway up the mountain, but then they're going to stay there. Right? They're not going to come all the way up. They're going to stay and they're going to worship from afar. But Moses, you're going to come all the way up. You're going to come into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. Do you see how the mountain prefigures the temple? You have the outer courts, the inner courts, and then the holy of holies. You might think Peter's question in verse 5 is just the ramblings of someone who is totally overwhelmed. Right? When Peter uh, is there on the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, to Jesus, uh, you know, it's, it's good that we're here. Let, let us make some tents. And you might just think, you know, what is he talking about? But actually, they're reasonable questions uh, for someone who is a good Jewish man, right? Peter is anticipating the promise that God is at some point going to come and dwell again with his people. And so Peter thinks, okay, this is it. We need to set up some tents because God's going to dwell here with his people. But what Peter doesn't understand is that on this mountain, Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. God, of course, is going to dwell with man. Jesus is the dwelling place of God with men. We know that the the tabernacle and the temple, they were all shadows. They were all pointers to Christ who is the temple. Again, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word, dwelt, it literally is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. In Jesus, we have full access into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. No longer must we remain at the base of the mountain or in the inner courts, but no, we have full access into the Holy of Holies because of Jesus. We can go into the temple to worship the Lord with boldness as we behold Jesus. He is God with this. And get this, 
by virtue of our union with Christ, who is the temple, guess what? By his spirit, he makes us into the very temple of God. How does God now dwell on the earth? He dwells among his people in the church. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We are the household of God, the temple of Lord, uh, the temple of the Lord with Jesus as the very cornerstone. In him, we are the temple of God because of our union with Christ. And because you know that that in Jesus you have full access to God, that you, you can come into the Holy of Holies, you can be in the very presence of the Lord. You can let go of any need to perform or earn your way into God's favor. In Jesus, we have full access. Hear me. In Jesus, you have full access into the innermost parts, into the very presence. The, the curtain has been torn. The veil has been removed. There is no obstacle between you and the Lord. And beyond that, as members of the household of God, as the church who are the, the living embodiment of Christ, you ought to be emboldened to take up your identity as ambassadors of Christ who show him off to the world. We are the body of Christ. How will the, the world come to see and know? How, listen, how does the world look into the face of Jesus Christ? One of the things the scripture says is that one of the ways that they do that is they look in on the church, who is the very body of Christ. As they look to the Lord, as they trust in the Lord, Jesus is put on display. His glory is put on display through his people. Number four, at the transfiguration, we see Jesus as the eternally beloved son. We read in verse seven, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. These words, of course, take us back to Jesus' baptism. You remember at Jesus' baptism, when he rises out of the water, God the Father declares, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. At Jesus' baptism, the Father's words are aimed at Jesus. But now here at the transfiguration, do you notice they're aimed at the disciples? This is my beloved son. Three times in the New Testament. Three times in the New Testament, God audibly speaks. And two of them are him declaring his unbounded pleasure in his son. Twice, two of the three times, God declares his absolute joy and delight in his son. The idea is that the father is filled to the brim with pleasure and delight and love in the son for all eternity, the Father and Son have existed in perfect harmony and loving union. There's not one ounce, not even a hint of displeasure or disappointment. In all that he does, Jesus perfectly delights and gratifies the Father. Some have asked why God announces his pleasure in his Son, both at his baptism and then here at his transfiguration. There's probably more reasons, but I would suggest one is, that in Jesus' baptism, he takes on the identity as the sin bearer. 
And as God the Father sees Jesus taking on the identity of sin bearer, he is, he is provoked, he is incited to declare the pleasure that he has in his son, but now here at the transfiguration, which points to his ultimate victory and exaltation again, the father is incited and provoked to declare his pleasure in his son. Can you imagine, really think, I know, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but just stop for me. I, probably out of all the points, I want you to get this one. That's not true. I want you to get all of them. Listen, can you imagine, just for a moment in your Christian life, can you imagine what it would look like day by day, moment by moment, if you really knew and believed that the Father was absolutely delighted, took pleasure in all that you are? Can you imagine what it would be like to know for certain that the Lord, the Lord, the Lord looks upon you and just is absolutely overcome with utter delight and pleasure and joy? Brothers and sisters, in Jesus, that's exactly the case. Do you realize who you are now? You are beloved children of God. The New Testament is profuse in characterizing those who put their faith in Christ as beloved children of God. As the father looks on his son and says, this is my son whom I love. This is my well-beloved son in whom is all my pleasure and all my delight. So now all who are joined to, to, to Christ in faith, the Lord looks on and says, this is my son this is my daughter, beloved. Listen, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, again, the, the passage that uh, Jeremy read. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Ephesians 1, 4-6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Right? We have been blessed in the beloved, that is Jesus Christ, so that now he looks on us as his beloved children. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, get this, ready? Colossians 1, 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then later on in chapter three, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Are you hearing me? The father now calls you his own beloved children. Brothers and sisters, do you know that in Jesus you are beloved children of God? The pleasure and delight that God the Father has in his beloved Son is the same pleasure and delight he has in you by your union with him through faith. Because you know that you are beloved of God, your identity is secure. You don't have to go looking for your identity in relationships, in status, in wealth in image, in possessions, in your social media status. No, if you are in Christ, the rock bottom, when you get to the very bottom of it, the rock bottom of your identity is this, beloved child of God. 
And because you can stand firm and sure in this identity, you are free to live a life of fearless obedience because you know this most simple truth. God loves me. It, it doesn't get any simpler, and yet it doesn't get any more profound than this fact. That God, before all eternity, loved, set his love upon you, and now considers you to be his beloved child in Christ. This is Paul's whole point at the end of Romans 8. right? He goes in the whole train. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. And then he closes in this sort of ascending anticipation, ascending culmination of of praise. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number five. How am I doing? All right. Number five, he is our final mediator and intercessor. I'm going to go a little bit quicker through these. At the transfiguration, we see Jesus as the final mediator between God and men. Uh, Both Moses and Elijah, but most predominantly Moses, serve as a mediator and intercessor between God and the people. But at at the transfiguration, we see Moses and Elijah as subordinate to the Lord Jesus, right? They are cast as, uh, not as contemporaries who are equal with Jesus, but more as contemporaries of Peter and James and John. And not only that, but in verse 8, it tells us that after they heard the very audible voice of God, Peter, James, and John were left with Jesus alone. No more Moses, no more Elijah, Elijah, but Jesus is left there alone. For a time, Moses mediated between God and men, but his ministry was imperfect and pointed to one that would come and be the perfect and final mediator. We know of 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. What does that mean for us? It means that you never have to live with the guilt or shame of your sin because Jesus always lives to intercede for you before God. Even now, as beloved children of God, you will sin. But you have the confidence of knowing that when you confess your sin in Jesus, you are forgiven. And that when the Father looks on you, he doesn't see your sin, but he sees the very righteousness of Jesus. The the righteousness of Jesus, whoever lives, to stand in your place, whoever lives to plead your cause, whoever lives to be your mediator and intercessor. And because of this, sin has no power and you are free in Christ to say no to sin. You don't need to fear the enemy who accuses you day and night before the Lord, though he bring a thousand accusations. Listen, hear me. Though the enemy bring a thousand accusations to the Lord every single day for the rest of your life, Yet Jesus will never stop pleading your case. He will never stop standing to your defense. And because Jesus always defends you on the basis of his own finished work. That's a little vertical. But because Jesus always defends you, guess what you don't have to do with one another? 
You don't have to be defensive. Right? You know there's one who defends you. So when someone comes and confronts you and says, brother, sister, your sin, you don't have to be self-defensive. Right? You know that Jesus defends you, that he pleads your case, and you can acknowledge, yep, jacked up, broken, and yet rescued, preserved, kept safe in Christ. Number six, at the transfiguration, we see Jesus as the suffering servant. Verses 9 to 13, read with me again. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. These verses are somewhat puzzling, uh, but I'm going to try and help you understand what's going on here. So after they come down from the mountain, Jesus tells the disciples to keep quiet about what they've seen until he is raised from the dead. Jesus has often told the disciples and others to remain silent, but this is the first time that Jesus puts a little qualifier on it. Remain silent until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the Assumption is then that when the Son of Man is raised from the dead, you need, to, you need to bear witness to these things. You need to speak these things. There will be a time to share and proclaim these things, but it's not until Jesus dies and rises again. But therein lies the problem for the disciples. right? They are still troubled by this idea that the Messiah has to suffer and die. You remember last week. So verse 10 isn't really a picture of the disciples' joyful obedience. right? Verse 10, that, that they, they keep quiet and they... They question among themselves. It's not so much a picture of their joyful obedience as much as it is that they're happy to keep this to themselves because they don't like the idea that Jesus is going to have to die. And Jesus saying that he's going to rise from the dead means, it presumes, it implies that he's got to die first. You see, they are questioning what the rising of the dead must mean. It's, it's pretty straightforward, right? He's got to die and then he's got to come back to life. But they are starting from the assumption that it can't mean that the Messiah has to actually physically suffer and die. So then they throw this loaded question at Jesus to sort of force the issue. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? It's a loaded question that refers to Malachi 4, uh, this prophecy, you can read it this afternoon, but this, this prophecy where Elijah is the one who comes and signals the day of the Lord. Uh, interesting, it's one of the, interestingly, it's one of the only other passages of Scripture where Moses and Elijah appear side by side. But in that passage, uh, the coming of Elijah signals the day of the Lord when all evil will be judged and everything will be set right. But the point the disciples are trying to make is, uh, hey, Jesus, there's this disciple or there's, there's, there's this prophecy in Malachi 4 that talks about the coming of Elijah and the restoration of all things. I'm not, I don't, there's no suffering in that passage. I don't, I don't see any suffering. And Jesus responds, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But then he adds, how is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see, the disciples have part of the picture, but they don't have the whole picture. Right? Elijah does come, and his coming will signal the restoration of all things. But the disciples don't understand that the way to glory is the way of the cross. That in order for Jesus to be the risen and exalted Savior, he must first be the suffering servant. 
Jesus goes on to say, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. This, according to Matthew's gospel, is a reference to John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist who comes and not only prefigures Jesus' life, right, or pre, pre, is a forerunner to Jesus' life, but is a forerunner in his death. Right? John the Baptist is rejected and ultimately violently killed. John typifies the way in which the Savior that he pointed to would ultimately be rejected and handed over to death. And what the disciples are seeing at the transfiguration is a foretaste of what's to come and the future resurrection and glorification and exaltation of Christ. But what they fail to see is that, again, the way of glory is the way of the cross. And so Jesus is presented here as the suffering servant. He is the one who must die. He is the one who must go to the cross. He is the one who must bear all of the judgment of God for the sin of his people. And he dies. He does. He goes to the cross. He dies. And the death he dies, he dies uh, really and truly and completely so that we might have the real and true and complete forgiveness and pardon of sin. Brothers and sisters, because he died in your place, you are set free from any sense of pride or self-glory. The cross humbles us because it declares over us that we are so sinful that the very Son of God had to die in our place. And yet at the very same time, it also assures us that God is unalterably for us and that he loves us. And so because I am both humbled by and assured of my identity as God's child in the shadow of the cross, I'm enabled to love others instead of measuring myself against them in some self-righteous attempt to assert my own superiority. Right? I don't have to internally compare myself to others. In the light of the cross, I see that I am more evil and more messed up and more broken than I could ever imagine. And yet at the same time, I find that I am perfectly safe and beloved in the arms of Christ. Number seven, he is the risen Savior. In verse 9, in the previous section, Jesus explicitly tells them that he is going to rise again from the dead. Though the disciples struggle to grasp what this means, Jesus says to them as clear as day that he's going to die. But not only that he will die, but that he will rise again. And the transfiguration is a pointer. It's a pointer to the risen Christ. He will not stay dead. The transfiguration anticipates and looks forward to the resurrection. But of course, we have the the privilege of looking back and knowing not only that he did die, but that he did rise again. And so we have joy. But not only that, Jesus' resurrection guarantees that all God's promises, hear me, Jesus' resurrection guarantees that all God's promises will come to pass. That we have a sure and certain hope that we will ultimately be received into glory, into the eternal joy and perfect fellowship with him. And those who are united to Christ in his death and his resurrection, because we have this certain hope, we can endure sufferings, hardships, and trials, and even persecutions in this life with joy. Number eight, he is the exalted king. The transfiguration is also a foretaste of the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. The glory that emanates from Jesus 
points not only to the fact that Jesus rises from the dead, but to the the fact that 40 days after his resurrection, he ascends the well-beloved son to sit at the right hand of the father in glory, to rule and to reign until all his enemies should be made his footstool. The, the, The Puritans saw a deep connection between the glory of Jesus and his ascension. And they found a picture of it in Psalm 24. Probably a familiar psalm to you, but Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill? Well, we could read, who shall ascend the mount of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear to sleep deceitfully. And then we jump down, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates. This is a picture. Imagine Jesus ascending and arriving there at the gates of heaven. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then from the other side of the gates, who is this King of glory? And the answer, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then again from behind the gates, who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You see at the transfiguration, you see this anticipation of Jesus exalted in glory. And though the transfiguration is presented here only before Peter and James and John, a day is coming when he will be seen in glory before the entire company of the redeemed, indeed before the entire creation, so that every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he will be exalted forever. And now because that's true, because that's true, listen to me, because that's true, because Jesus Christ has been ascended, has ascended and exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is king, ruling and reigning right now. You don't have to be afraid of the results of the election. Come what may, November 4th, Jesus still sits on his throne. Jesus still is the ascended and exalted Savior of his people, accomplishing all his purposes. That should give us great comfort. We don't have to fear the the, the, the results. We don't have to fear where this country is headed. In fact, it liberates us. It liberates us to work for the good of the the country that we live in and the state that we live in and the county and the town that we live in, knowing this great reality that Jesus sits on his throne. And there he accomplishes all his wise purposes and continues to perfectly build his church. Number nine, at the transfiguration, we see Jesus presented as the restorer of all things. Notice that, that in verse 11 and 12, Jesus doesn't respond to Peter's question by saying, No, 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 that's wrong. Elijah doesn't signal the restoration of all things. What the the disciples missed is that before the restoration, there is suffering. There is death on a cross. But Jesus affirms the truth that the Messiah will restore all things. Right? Elijah is a, a typological pointer both to John the Baptist and to the Messiah. And Jesus is the fulfillment of Elijah as the one whose coming signals the end when he will destroy all evil, punish all wickedness, make all things new. 
In my own reading, I've been reading in the Psalms and in the book of Nahum. And uh, in Nahum 3, there is this, uh, it's the last verse of the entire book. And it's a question. And it's uh, throughout the book of Nahum, uh, the, the, the prophet has been foretelling the destruction of Nineveh. And he says, he sort of sums it up. He says, there is no, it's a, it's a pointer to final judgment. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? In Psalm 58, same idea. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Right? There is a very real sense in which Jesus coming signals the day of the Lord when he will put an end to all evil. And the entire company of the redeemed, the righteous, will clap their hands and will rejoice that all evil has been been gotten rid of. That all evil has been destroyed. But not only that, not only the destruction of evil, but they will rejoice because the Lord brings renewal and the restoration of all things. At the coming of Christ, all things will be made new, a new heaven, a new earth. The dwelling place of God will be with man. Isaiah 35, 1, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. All wrongs will be set right. All injustices will be rectified and we will be with the Lord forever. He is the restorer of all things. And number 10, as we go to the Lord's Supper, we see at the transfiguration that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. In my study, I I was captivated by that little phrase in verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain. Again, there are so many parallels between this passage and, and, and Exodus 24 and 34 in particular. But it calls to mind Exodus 34, 29, where we, where we read, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain. As Moses comes down the mountain, he comes holding two tablets, the book of the covenant, the law. The law, the scriptures tell us, have only the power to condemn. And yet as Jesus comes down this mountain, he sets his face to Jerusalem. This marks a decisive point in Mark's gospel where now Jesus is going to unalterably head toward the place of his death. But before he actually goes to the cross, he's going to have a meal with his disciples. He's going to hold two things in his hand. He's going to hold a cup. He's going to hold some bread. Signs of a new covenant. In Jesus' hand are not two tables, but a sign of his own blood and body. Blood poured out, body broken. These are signs of a better covenant, which has the power to bring pardon and new life. All who put their faith in what these symbols represent, Christ and his body broken, Christ and his blood poured out, receive 
eternal life and the promised spirit who dwells in us as a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance in Christ and who helps us and convicts us and guides us and teaches us and who ultimately works in us so that we should ever fix our eyes on Christ. You know, last thing here. In Exodus 24, and again, go back and read it this afternoon. It's wonderful. Exodus 24, uh, Moses uh, makes a sacrifice. And he takes half of the blood and he puts it in basins. And he takes the other half of the blood and he throws it against the altar. And then he reads the entire law to, to the people of Israel. And after he's done reading the law, he throws the blood on the people. Literally, he throws the blood on them. And here again we see in the cup and the bread the signal of a better covenant. Right here, we don't have represented blood that goes on to us merely to cover us. But what represents blood to go in us, to cleanse us from within. Right, what we have in the Lord's Supper is, is, a, is a memory, is a, is a remembrance of the fact that Jesus has done all that is necessary to provide a perfect salvation, not a partial, incomplete salvation, but a complete salvation whereby we are cleansed from the very inside out, where we are given a new heart, where the stone of heart is taken out, the flesh of heart uh, replaced with a, a heart of flesh, and the Spirit of God poured into our hearts. He is the guarantor of a new and better covenant. So let's go to the Lord's table now in remembrance of his perfect saving work. Let me pray for us first and then we'll go. Lord, I thank you for this time together. I know uh, I've just thrown a lot here at, at these brothers and sisters. And I pray, maybe it's just one point or two points, uh, but I pray that, that, that these words have ministered and nourished uh, these brothers and sisters in some way. Lord, would you keep us ever fixing our eyes on Jesus? Would you keep us ever looking to him, beholding his glory that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to another? I pray in Jesus' name.